This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's programme... The Ukraine crisis it has really kind of humanised the refugee issue. People have been able to see women, children, men in extremely difficult circumstances. As someone who understands the horrors of war very well, I was so happy to see countries in Europe opening their borders to Ukrainian refugees. But the question is, what was happening before that? We do need to continue education and continue a commitment to these principles because we never know when they're going to be needed. Hello and welcome again to Inside Geneva. And as you've probably guessed, in this programme we're going to take a look at the issue of refugees. Next week, the UN marks Refugee Day. So today, we're going to hear about the lives of refugees, the situations that force people to flee, and we'll ask whether countries are really honouring the 1951 Convention on Refugees, which most of them signed up to. To join me, I have three amazing guests. My name is Nial Deng. I'm a South Sudanese refugee. I'm a writer and a community activist and a lot of other things in between. Well, I'm Gillian Triggs and I work for the United Nations. I'm an assistant High Commissioner for Protection. So my job is protection of people who've been forcibly displaced and people who are stateless. My name is Jeff Crisp. I'm based in Oxford in the UK. My sphere of expertise is refugee asylum and migration policy. Exhausted and traumatised, these refugees have fled every corner of Ukraine. These Ukrainians have just escaped the horrors of their home. 2022 has been dominated so far by the war in Ukraine, and with it the biggest refugee crisis since the Second World War. More than 10 million Ukrainians have fled their homes, Worldwide, the UN now estimates a 100 million people have been forcibly displaced. And for some, like Neil Deng, displacement has meant a life in exile. My family has been affected by war for generations and generations. I was born a refugee in a way because my father fled South Sudan in the 1970s during the first Sudanese civil war. I was born and raised in Ethiopia where he settled after fleeing the war. I've never had a chance to go to South Sudan, which is my home country. Uh, and the only way I learned about South Sudan is through stories that my dad used to tell me of his childhood growing up uh, in a small town by the Nile in, in the country and how his childhood was beautiful and then war came and robbed him of everything. And uh, I never thought that this story will become mine someday and I'll have to flee. But in 2010, everything turned upside down and uh, my father's story became my own. <laughs> For Neil, Ethiopia was at first a happy home. I had a very beautiful childhood. I was growing up in a small village in the western part of Ethiopia, in the Gambela region. And I would go to school in the morning, in the evening I come back. Um, I go and play with children from the neighborhood in the river nearby. Uh, we would have, you know, storytelling sessions where we talk about our stories. We want to be in the future, our superpowers. It was all beautiful. Um, the school was very important to me and my dad took it very seriously as well. Uh, because his education was interrupted by war in South Sudan. So one morning, my dad woke me up at 5 a.m. It was early in the morning, it was still dark. I could hear gunshots outside, I could hear people screaming outside, and I was just lost. I didn't know what was happening. And my dad told me I need to rush, I need to grab um, a pants and a t-shirt and put them in a small paper bag and grab a bottle of water. And he brought me outside the house, and coming outside I could see houses burning, I could see people running in every direction. I saw someone bleeding on the ground. 
and I could see my whole village disappearing right in front of me. And um, I was lost. I didn't know what was happening. My legs couldn't carry me. My dad asked me to run toward a small group of people, mostly women and children, who were all playing the village. And I never wanted to leave my dad. So I was crying as they were taking me away. And then my dad told me, you will go to Kenya and be able to go to school. Uh, after three days of walking, I remember when I got to the camp, I still had all the images of war or brutal scene of violence I saw in my village. And all those traumatized me. And um, I, I was just lost. I couldn't find myself. But... Um, you know, my life took a turn when I went to school. I think uh, I was able to find solace and hope in uh, in school. How old were you then? I was I was eleven years old when all that happened. So, you were separated from your parents when you were eleven because yes. of this. I was separated from my parents, and uh, I lost contact with my dad. Uh, I lost contact with my mom and my siblings. We never talked again until 2014, when South Sudan went into civil war again, and they had to move back to Ethiopia. That is when we were connected through our phone. That must have been very hard for you on your own. Yeah, it was very hard trying to figure out life in a different world by myself. There are an estimated 150,000 children from Syria in this city. The United Nations says sub-Saharan African migrant children face appalling levels of human rights abuses. Neil's experience shouldn't happen to any child, and yet it happens to tens of millions. But although we're focused now on the crisis in Ukraine, how often do we think about little boys like Neil? This year, the UN Refugee Agency's slogan for Refugee Day is whoever, wherever, whenever. Gillian Triggs, Assistant High Commissioner at the agency, welcomed me into her office to tell me more. What we're trying to say is that the key principle of international law is that everybody everywhere, in every context, has a right to seek asylum. That does not mean that they have a right to asylum, but they have a right to enter the territory of a country to ask that a claim to asylum be assessed and recognised. If they're in need of international protection, then they should be granted that protection. Why have you chosen that slogan this year in particular? Well, that's a, that's a, an important question because... We chose it before the war in Ukraine. One of the concerns um, before the war was a, a growing pushback against the fundamental principles of refugee protection. We have some countries externalizing, sending asylum seekers back to poor countries or poorer countries in Africa. We have countries pushing back boats. We have populist xenophobic views that are very negative towards those seeking protection. We have real challenges to the now 70-year-old Refugee Convention and the principle of the right to seek asylum. And so as an organisation, uh, the UN Refugee Agency felt that it was time to come back to core principles, to remind why it's necessary. Crossing the Sahara in search of a better life. These migrants abound for Europe. The UN is calling the Rohingya refugee crisis the world's most urgent refugee crisis. Take a look at what's going on behind me. That was a difficult time. Uh, people coming up from Africa through through North Africa, across the Mediterranean to Europe. People coming up from North Central America through Mexico to the United States. And of course, a million Rohingya uh, subject to really brutal 
crimes, fleeing to the hospitality of Bangladesh. These were difficult times. But then we have the war in Ukraine. And we see that while there was a reluctance of the EU countries even to agree on a pact with regard to how they were going to manage refugees coming, the relatively few thousands, suddenly we find that the borders are open and now the numbers are something like 6.7 million people have fled from Ukraine across those borders, uh, all being uh, welcomed. And the extraordinary uh, use for the first time ever of the temporary protection directive by the EU, which gives security and protection for up to three years. Why do you think in this particular case, Europe has been so generous, a polar opposite almost, to its policy before? You said that what you've seen is is really best practice for how refugees should be welcomed and, and hosted. Is this a conversation you're having with EU governments then? Because we do see developing across Europe a bit of a Mm two-tier system with Ukrainian refugees, even here in Switzerland, for example, you know, immediate right to work and so on, immediate access to, to welfare benefits and something very different for people from from other countries. Mm-hmm. Well, that that is troubling. There's no doubt about that. And that is why we want to go from that best practice in the Ukraine context to say, this is what we'd like to see you. you could, you've shown you can do it. So now do it in relation to other countries that are coming, whether they're coming from Afghanistan, from Syria, Rohingya, if they make their way in, into this part of the world, or for somebody coming from war-torn Ethiopia. So we would very much like at the EU and the European countries generally to look again at their processes and say, you've demonstrated you can do this, now make it universal. From Belgium, Switzerland, Scandinavia, Europeans offer a free home for war refugees. You come Belgium? Okay. Finland, Italy, Spain, People that are showing up here and saying, I can take a family of four, I can take two people, I have a place. European countries have offered refugees from Ukraine an unprecedented welcome. For Jeff Crisp, who spent 35 years working on refugee issues and is now at Oxford University's Refugee Studies Centre, it's a positive sign. There is some grounds for optimism if we look at what's happened in recent weeks in relation to the Ukraine refugee situation. Firstly, I'd suggest that the kind of the speed and the scale and the whole circumstances of the Ukraine crisis and, of course, the very extensive media attention that's been devoted to it has definitely raised new awareness of the plight of people who are forced to flee. Another ground for optimism would be the fact that states, again, particularly, but not exclusively in Europe, have responded in a notably generous manner to the emergency, both in terms of opening their borders uh, to refugees from Ukraine, but also in organising resettlement programmes so that people can come to Europe by means of kind of safe and legal routes. And that, again, is a ground for optimism. Then thirdly, perhaps the the biggest ground for optimism is that families and communities around the world have clearly opened their homes to refugees from Ukraine, and including many, as far as I can see, many people who previously had little, if any, involvement in refugee issues. So on those grounds, I would say there is some grounds for cautious optimism, At the same time, I think there are some uh, other considerations we need to take into account. I'm wondering whether you think that 
people in Europe, ordinary people, are very ready to be generous towards refugees and asylum seekers, wherever they come from. But their their governments are always erring on the side of restrictions. You're nodding there. Do you, do you think that's the case? I think it's true to say in recent years there's been a lot of local level activity on behalf of refugees by neighbourhoods, by communities, by faith-based groups. And often that amount of activity and the commitment that ordinary people are showing to the cause of refugee protection is often obscured by the very draconian policies that governments themselves are introducing. So I think uh, you're right to say that hidden behind the very harsh policies that many states have pursued in recent years, there is a, a readiness amongst ordinary people to welcome refugees into their communities and to support them. And I think that is one of the major grounds for optimism at the moment. You've, of course, been involved in, in refugee policy for, for three and a half decades. Have you noticed a change in attitude towards the the idea of asylum? I think those of us who work in the humanitarian world tend to be quite pessimistic. And certainly when I started uh, to get involved with refugee issues 35 years ago, even then people were saying, oh, it's never been worse. You know, the reception given to refugees used to be much better and it's getting worse and worse. And people are still saying that today. But by any kind of objective standard, if we look at what's happening around the world, not only in Europe, but elsewhere, I think we can find a number of indicators of the fact that state policies are becoming more restrictive, more exclusionary, and uh, the welcome given to refugees is actually diminishing, yes. So if that welcome has diminished over the years, what are the consequences Let's go back and ask Neil Deng, who found himself just 11 years old in a refugee camp in Kenya. So you were in Kenya in a camp? Yeah, I was in Kakuma refugee camp. You could go to school? Yes. And how was that? How long did you stay? I was in the refugee camp for 11 years. That's a long time. Yes, that is a long time. But the shocking thing is that there are people who have lived in that camp for over 20 years and they're still there today. You were there from the age of 11 to, to 22 then. How did you think about your future? How did you plan? I never planned anything. Uh, so for me, you know, I, I could see that through education, I might be able to secure a more full and brighter future for myself and my family and my community. So I put all my hopes into education and I said, yeah, this is all I'm pursuing. And my dream was to go to school in the West because I wanted to know very good English. So I work very hard. And um, last year I was able to win a full scholarship to go to college in Canada. You live in Canada now? Yeah, now I live in Canada. And where is home for you? Um, That is a very hard question. Uh, For me, I think I connect home with the people around me more than where I was born or where I come from or where I live because, you know, I've never been to South Sudan. And my dad used to tell me stories about his childhood, about his village. You know, Ethiopia was never like home to us. My dad told me how it was difficult for him to start his life there because first when he entered Ethiopia, he living in a refugee camp. He moved out of the camp and he started a new life. And um, then Canada now, I think for me, home is more, you know, the people around me, the places around me that I could connect with, where I could feel like I'm part of the community. And um, 
I would say that I found some sense of home in Kakuma. Sometimes people find it shocking that you could find home in a refugee camp, but Kakuma has a very incredible sense of community. People have nothing, but they share every single thing they have. People share joy together, they share happiness together, they share sorrow together. People are happy. You see kids running to school in the morning, they look toward a brighter future. So it was like a big, big community on its own. So home is brought around me. 11 years, the best part of his childhood and adolescence, Neil spent in a refugee camp. This shouldn't be the fate of any child. And yet around the world, millions of families do wait in limbo, in camps or temporary accommodation, unable to work, unable to go home, and denied the chance to settle somewhere new and try to restart their lives. Asylum seekers who reached the UK after crossing the English Channel in small boats are to be sent to Rwanda in a controversial new immigration deal the two countries will sign off on today. The message is simple. If you come to Australia illegally by boat, there is no way you will ever make Australia home. To add to that, some governments are adopting a new policy. Rather than offering the asylum they're obliged to offer under the Refugee Convention, they are outsourcing refugees. For Gillian Triggs, the strategy is alarming. Well, I, I can say categorically that we are firmly opposed to a form of externalisation that denies the right of access to claim asylum on the territory and then deports people who've claimed asylum entirely consistently with international law, deports them to a country in the global south, but particularly a developing country in Africa. Now, this is not a unique exercise by the United Kingdom. We have the Australian model uh, where people have sent to remote islands of very poor countries, totally dependent on aid from Australia. We also have the United States examples with their policy of putting people straight back on planes and back to countries that were dangerous. Now, we and the High Commissioner has stood firmly against this as a policy and for a very, very simple reason that to outsource in these ways is contrary to international law and the obligations they've accepted, but it's also morally indefensible and completely contrary to the spirit of the Global Compact on Refugees, which is, again, the principle of equitable sharing of responsibilities. Does it frustrate you sometimes that we have the Convention on Refugees, it's international law, and yet in some countries some of the wealthiest countries, the whole issue of immigration, asylum, refugees is mixed up and highly politicised. Mm. Oh, it's, uh, it's extremely disappointing. I'm an international lawyer. I've always valued these international principles and everybody understood them, it might be said, in the years after the Second World War. That was why the Refugee Convention was, was agreed, that it was about 2 million people at that time. But 70 years later, particularly in Europe or North America, they haven't had major wars we haven't had a global war and we have rather taken peace for granted, it's certainly in Europe. And I think that it's very difficult to come back to those, those core principles. We have to remind, be reminded about why those principles are so critical. Is that maybe the silver lining of, of this terrible war in Ukraine? It might remind people why we need a convention, oh, what it means to be a refugee? 
Oh, I mean, of course, we'd see a silver lining of being that it's reminded us as to why the Refugee Convention is so important. And that's why I think much of this discussion will be both pre-war and after war. Um, but no, of course, no one would want anything like this to prove a point. But the tragedy, and I mean, it's, it's a, perhaps a reality of human behaviour, uh, that when we don't see the need for, for laws, we, we sort of forget about them and, and take the peace for granted. We do need to continue education and continue a commitment to these principles because we never know when they're going to be needed. Another steel rampart in the fortifications of Europe. The Hungarian government. A moment to shame the EU today. Ugly clashes on the newly reinforced border between Hungary and Serbia at the new ramparts. But until the Ukraine crisis, Europe seemed to be putting up ever more barriers to refugees. Many describe the policy now as fortress Europe. Jeff Crisp hears those words with a weary familiarity. Well, it's very interesting you should use the phrase fortress Europe because that was a phrase that was first coined in the in the mid to late 1980s, which indicates that these concerns have been around for a very long time indeed. Outsourcing or offshore processing, as it's sometimes known, is definitely one of the most disturbing trends that we see in global refugee policy uh, today, particularly the Australian example where asylum seekers were intercepted at sea and then sent to remote islands in Papua New Guinea and Nauru and essentially detained there for months and years on end while their cases were being looked at. The United Kingdom announcing an agreement with Rwanda that any asylum seeker arriving in the UK by so-called irregular means will be sent to Rwanda for their cases to be examined. And perhaps most importantly of all, if they are found to be uh, qualified for refugee status, they will not be readmitted to the UK, but will be expected to make a new life for themselves in Rwanda. There are a number of reservations and objections to this offshoring process. It often involves the inhumane treatment of the asylum seekers concerned and subjects them to fairly awful human rights abuses, as we've seen in the case of Nauru and Papua New Guinea. Most refugee lawyers would argue that this is contrary to the principles of the United Nations Refugee Convention that was established at the end of the Second World War. Why is it, do you think, that so many governments in the developed world, their policy seems to be founded on the idea that too many asylum seekers or too many refugees are somehow a threat? Political leaders very rarely promote the 1951 convention to their voters. I think there are a number of reasons why why states have become so negative in relation to the arrival of refugees and asylum seekers. Uh, they see it as some kind of a threat to their security and their sovereignty. And of course, the security but issue... Is it? Well, I think if you look at the Refugee Convention, it actually includes very clear safeguards to ensure that people who have committed crimes or crimes against humanity should not qualify for refugee status and can be excluded. The people who drafted the Refugee Convention so many years ago actually did it with a great deal of foresight and recognised this could be an issue, as well as the kind of threat to security and sovereignty. It's seen as a threat to sovereignty because Many asylum seekers arrive by irregular means and using the services of smugglers because there are no direct or safe or legal routes that they can use to reach the countries that they want to go to. Um, it's seen as an unwanted burden on public finances. 
the cost of processing asylum seekers, providing them with legal advice, accommodation, is seen to be an unwanted burden on state finances. Not um, as expensive as sending them out to offshore. Well, that's a very good point because if you look at the amount that Australia has been spending on sending people to Papua New Guinea and Nauru or the amount that um, the UK is planning to spend on sending people to Rwanda, these are very, very significant sums of money. So where does that leave us as, here in Geneva at least, we prepare to celebrate Refugee Day? Are we close to abandoning the Refugee Convention altogether? Or has this new, disastrous war in Europe raised our awareness? For Gillian Triggs, of course, it's not about just one day a year. She and her colleagues at the UN Refugee Agency are preparing for challenging times ahead. What we're really hoping is that we can work with host countries to find durable solutions. And and I say durable because I was recently at the Poland-Ukraine border and local families had opened up their houses. But now it's more than three months. And we, when I was there, uh, the local mayor said, well, we're already getting people coming to us to say, look, we, we did it as an act of generosity because we're so close to the Ukrainians, we understand them, they could come to our house and live with us for three months. But we can't do it any longer. So the question is going to be, what are the durable solutions? Many European countries have ageing communities and need workers. So we're looking for solutions. And some of those solutions could be Jobs, labor mobility, self-sufficiency. Others could be educational opportunities. I met young Ukrainian women with a sparkle in their eyes saying, we're going to France or Italy and we're going to go to university and we'll get a job. That's what we're going to do for three years. So what we're trying to focus on is concrete solutions that will work for all countries. The question then comes back to, is this durable? Will we find that it's happening a little bit? But will it fray at the edges over the next month or so? And then by the time with what looks like a protracted war, if that's the case, and I hope that I'm wrong, but if that's the case, we will start to see accommodation problems, crowded schools, cost to health facilities, and a bit of maybe antagonism in relation to the job market. We'll see all those problems. So we have to think preventatively about what are durable solutions. It's going to be a huge task for for Poland because millions will stay in Poland, but it's a big task for for all the other countries as well. So, yes, how how Europe manages to respond to this, what kind of planning they're prepared to put into it, how all of us can help with that will depend on, on these next few months. Meanwhile, Jeff Crisp does hope the generosity towards refugees from Ukraine will be offered to others. But he also wants the conversation about refugees and refugee policy to change. Well, I think one positive dimension of the Ukraine crisis it has really kind of humanised the refugee issue. People have been able to see women, children, men in extremely difficult circumstances escaping from circumstances which are very immediate threats to their life. And I think that might change the discourse on refugees somewhat. We need to make sure that we amplify the voices of those people who are making a sensible and constructive contribution towards the discourse on refugees, whether it's lawyers, judges, civil society, faith-based organisations such as churches and mosques. Refugees themselves and the organisations which they establish um, must be given a much greater voice. For many years, refugees were largely excluded 
from the discourse on refugee policy. They're now beginning to assert themselves much more forcefully. We have to give them the platform that they need to be able to speak directly to governments. Those organisations like to use a phrase that there should be no discussions about them without them. And I think that's a very good principle. We're almost at the end of today's Inside Geneva. Producing this programme has made me think hard about what it means to be a refugee and what kind of refugee policy I'd be comfortable with my government pursuing. I hope this edition has caused you, our listeners, to think as well. We'll leave the last words to Neil Deng. As someone who understands the horrors of war very well, I was so happy to see countries in Europe opening their borders to Ukrainian refugees. But the question is, what was happening before that? There were so many people also trying to enter Europe, and we have seen people dying trying to cross the Mediterranean Sea, people dying uh, during the winter in Europe trying to get into countries. And I think that just showed us what is possible, and I think that is a good thing. The fact that countries in Europe can show all of us that they can actually welcome people, they can provide homes to those who have to flee their countries because of war. And I think, you know, what what we need to do and what all countries in Europe should do and all countries in the world is to make sure that if anyone has to flee their home because of war, because of violence, because of persecution, because of human rights, they should be welcome, no matter where they come from, no matter the color of their skin, no matter their social status, because people do not choose to become refugees until when they are forced to. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva from Swiss Info. You can hear more by going to our website, swissinfo.ch, We explore other key humanitarian challenges too, from the future of the United Nations to the war in Syria to look at the history behind the Ottawa Convention Against Landmines. And, of course, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you again for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time. Swiss Info.